Okay, so you have a box that you keep your watches in? I keep I keep my watches in a box, and uh, I have a couple automatic watches. So I can turn the box on, and they rotate, and they keep time, and I can see them through the glass face of the box, and it's it's beautiful. You just st- you just stare at your watches? Sometimes, yeah. Okay, so if ever there was a question about how metrosexual a man can be, we just answered it. I'm Scott Wayne. And I'm Ace Colwood. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. Uh, Sunday evening, and we have quite a bit to talk about, Scott. Yeah, hey, I'm going to do that parent confession. It's a joy to be in the office because <laughs> we all lie and we say we rest at the weekend. But if you're an active parent, rest is during the work week, not at the weekends. Oh, welcome to the podcast all right. studio. So this episode is brought to you by an involuntary sponsor known as Bingo Beer Company, which is only, as a reminder, our sponsors do not give permission and they certainly do not do not pay us for our endorsement of this podcast. We're, we are celebrating Bingo Beer Company only because we're drinking their beer. Arguably, we've paid them. This is a Well, I think we may have to pay. Do we know anybody at Bingo Beer? We know Jay. Yeah, Jay's, Jay's awesome. Jay who? Uh, Jay Bayer. I don't yeah, know Jay. Yeah, he's one of the owners of Hi, Bingo Jay. Beer Company. Spent some time with him over there talking about his, I don't know, plans for world domination and uh, i'm really excited about where they're heading but you hate breweries i do I, I should we make this our dislike. etiquette section <laughs> and now ladies and gentlemen right our etiquette section is do not take a ace colwood to a brewery why do you hate breweries they're like locally owned they're over designed they're full of pe- i'm sure if you walked into one there'd be 200 people who know you and want your autograph they're over designed with the intention of feeling under designed which is how they often feel um yeah no bre- Look, breweries, I'm not sure where to start on this one. I love a Bud Light or a PBR. I often ask, find me your worst beer, and that's the one I'll drink when I'm out and about. And uh, I find that that breweries um, take pride in their production of high-end, high-quality craft beer. And the easiest beer to make is the super heavy, overly flavored beer. And I find that I find that most often in breweries. Harder to make is quality light beer at scale, a la your bud latte, as I like to call them. Um, But more importantly, breweries often stem out of, uh, with a few exceptions, some folks are really intentional about building their brewery and the beer that they want to deliver to the masses. Uh, But most breweries start out of two jabronis in a in a garage saying, hey, I like beer, you like beer, let's make beer. And then they start making beer. And then they invite their buddies over to drink the beer. And their buddies don't tell them that the beer is not great. They say, this is great beer. And they say, awesome, we should sell this beer to more people. And so they expand their garage. They don't change the decor any. It's still the questionable set of stools and like the ladder and the cooler in the corner. And they start to scale this thing. And they invite people in and they get the requisite licenses and et cetera, et cetera. And then you end up in this place that is full of the... Um, the floppy-haired frat bros that I got in <laughs> oh, that's a jabroni. With. That's a jabroni. Just for international <laughs> listeners, they're jabroni, short for jabroni. A jabroni is uh, yeah, fr- fraternity bros with floppy hair and okay. baseball caps, uh, frequenting the corners of the city. Actually, just that for I our international love. listeners, again, fraternities are things that exist in U.S. universities because men can't mix with women or something. I don't. know. They hide in a house <laughs> together and whatever that is. Your words, not mine. Uh, yeah, so we end up with these these massive sprawling warehouses where people make beer and then sell me the beer. And my problem 
is I pay the same price for the beer in this brewery that I do for the uh, PBR, the People's Beer of Richmond, or Paps Blue Ribbon, that I so dearly enjoy. And the, the mechanics, uh, the economics of that purchase don't make sense to me because they don't have distribution fees. They made the beer in the back of the warehouse. They ran a line from the big vat of beer through the wall to the tap, and they serve it to me. Um, the marketing, I don't know. I, I'm at the brewery already. You're not selling me that thing. Um, I end up in this place, and I'm overpaying for a thing that uh, just I, I think is wildly overpriced for a suboptimal product when I would rather have free reign and free choice in a free market of all of the uh, appropriate beers that I might like to drink. And so breweries don't really move the needle for me is the thing. And I get invited to them often. And my answer is I'd really rather not do that. I'd rather have uh, Bud Heavy at Bamboo Cafe. Well, I'm so glad that we chose a brewery as mm -hmm. our sponsor for this edition. And I'm now realizing I do know some of the owners of Bingo Beer <laughs> Company. I'm really sorry. Instead of you sending us free stuff, we will come and spend some money there. Yeah. Just say sorry I am generally why Scott doesn't have nice things. And that's fair. I'll own that. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about... Actually, I want to talk about Slash Generation because this is the first time on our list of things to talk about. You've actually put your name at the end of it instead of just suggesting that it was my idea and not yours. What's the Slash Generation? Well, the last couple episodes, you didn't know whose idea it was. So I started putting my name after the things on the list. Um, the Slash Generation, I, I, I believe, refers to millennials, of, of which I am guilty of being one. Um, but the uh, if you go to Millennials LinkedIn and they have... Um, I don't know, designer slash creative oh. director slash uh, <laughs> recorded radio host slash everything yeah. else. It's this um, this inability. Well, it, uh, part of to it's commit. not a rant. Yeah, yes, but I am this thing. It's I'm not fully at a generation, at my people, if you will. It's this idea that we have we have had to be so many things to make the same dream work that our parents maybe didn't quite have to. There was the get the job, buy the house, pay off college, uh, work there for 30, 40 years, get the gold watch, retire. And now it's a, I'm a creator and a designer and a thinker and a thought leader, and I hate that term, but it's all of the things. And so this idea of being the slash generation is that we've cobbled together a some semblance of a career by taking our multiple skill sets and just combining them, but not being able to distill it to one term, and so we just put slashes in between them, hence the slash generation. The millennial generation is going to hate Gen Z so badly because Gen Z oh, actually God. has gone through pain yeah. versus the idea of pain. It's going to be an interesting one. I like it. Okay. Um, hey, while we're talking about everybody being on label, I just want to talk about Scottish politics for a minute. Okay. The Scottish National Party, Nationalist Party, is the party of government in Scotland. Yep. So we have a um, post Tony Blair, we have various assemblies and, and regional parliaments for the United Kingdom, not dissimilar from sort of a state legislature in the United States. And the party of government, um, the leader, Nicola Sturgeon, who's a prolific politician, uh, has stepped down. And they're running for uh, sort of a leadership election for who will be first minister, essentially sort of the, the as close as you get to the head of government okay. for Scotland. Now, the candidates running, the front runner was, uh, was Kate Forbes, who 
was the sort of minister of finance, essentially, in Scotland. And she was seen to be a shoo-in. Very, very successful, yeah. very young, late 20s, but is deeply conservatively religious. She's... Mm. Um, and had expressed her views that as much as the Scottish National Party had voted in favor of equal marriage, the equal marriage bill, she was not in favor of it. And she didn't say she would change it. She just said she was not in favor of it. Mm -hmm. And is suddenly dropped out of the running, or being pushed out of the running, as the party has turned on her. Ironically, the person, well, maybe ironically, maybe it's not, maybe it's just an interesting approach, is that the front runner now is Hamza Youssef, was a practicing Muslim, mm -hmm. did not vote in favor of the free marriage bill, was not in Holyrood, which is the Scottish uh, Assembly at the time of the vote. So it wasn't a formal abstention. He sort of just wasn't there to vote. But I think that was by design. I think okay. he would say yeah. it was by design. Yeah. Um, but it's come out very clearly that says faith should not affect politics mm. and it should be completely different. And so it's just interesting to me. It's back in this realm. I struggle with this because I'm, I'm my politics is socially very progressive um, and the <laughs> I'm laughing. Socially very pro progressive, economically something different, and national security is bomb the bastards. No, it's not. Um, it's, I hope it's more nuanced than that. But the it's just another one where when you express views that are not in vogue with um, progressive thinking, and your career is killed. Look, that's that's tough. I, I think. One's adherence to their faith is a very real thing, and you know, I, I, irrespective of my agreement with one's faith, I, there's a, an appreciation and a respect for that. Um, but as that trickles into the political realm, particularly around marriage, like I understand someone saying, uh, "Per my faith, I don't believe in this thing." The problem is, marriage is no longer a religious institution. It carries real ramifications in the social sphere. And so by, by being able to get married, there are tax implications, there are legal and living and decisions about end-of-life yeah. yeah, implications yeah. for a person. And so irrespective of your uh, desire to impose your religion on the masses, I think we're missing the mark if it's a, I don't believe in this thing, which the ramifications of which will be you are now precluded from uh, participating in society the way everybody else does. Like that's, I think, the real conversation to have. Yeah, I think it on these sorts of things where it is not, where we have inherited a uh, a religious sacrament essentially. Mm -hmm. What we should probably start thinking about, either those of us who are not practicing of any faith mm -hmm. downgrade to sort of civil union, if that's a downgrade. Or we, or we inter it might be easier to do the opposite as you go, no, 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 this is, this is a real marriage. Mm -hmm. there, there's a little asterisk that says, no, we, we, were in a, we're in a synagogue or a church or a temple, and this was the, oh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, we, it's, we did it's, our religious ceremony. I do, wonder, I do wonder how much of the Trump phenomena was built from the Obama administration's federalization, sort of federal jamming, let me put it this way, of equal marriage bills to states that were deeply, deeply conservatively religious. I just wanted that. We'll never know. I, oh, okay. All right. I'm, I, when was the last time you were in a church? Also, when was the last time you were married? Because I've had dozens of them. So I, you're not an expert. I can't answer that. either of those questions. <laughs> what I will say is the idea of having a deeper religious state is the problem. Like, yeah, well, so but it's opposite because you've got two Anglo-Saxon countries that are often compared, and you know the UK is, is 
pejoratively referred to as the 51st state by many others. Yeah. But religion, you can't talk about religion in British politics. You mm -hmm. will get closed down. Where we constantly talk about in US politics. Yeah. Tony Blair is a deep practicing Catholic and would never refer to his faith. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Uh, look. Oh, you never publicly. Promoted. So, like, can we stay on uh, right. on politics for a second? Yeah, sure. Um, Why not? Because so... everybody else switched off. <laughs> so it's just you and you, me, and Perry. And I don't know. I'm not sure Perry's listening either. No, oh, he well, is. He turned around. There. Okay. Um, so there is a um, there's a, a piece of legislation moving through the Florida Senate, um, introduced by the Senate Minority Leader Lauren Block. She's a she's a Democrat, um, and I saw this clip. It was just like a, a line or two about it in a newsletter that I read every morning, um, and it said, "Hey, we're LOLing at this bill in Florida that would uh, ban um, pet owners from allowing their pets to put their heads out the window." <laughs> and yeah, so Scott, Scott's laughing, Perry's laughing in the studio, and it requires a click through to actually get the context of that bill. The bill was sponsored by animal lovers and veterinarians in Florida, yeah. or it was it was uh, not sponsored by the, the sponsors, the legislator, but um, kind of introduced to this legisl legislator by people who love animals and say, hey, the same thing that might damage your windshield could absolutely give your dog or cat problems. As much as they love floppy ear out the window, and in order to protect pets appropriately, maybe we shouldn't let them put their heads out the window on the interstate. And so I, I saw this like kind of sound bite, if you will, and people were up in arms about it. I can't believe that we're going to this, that, and a third. But when you get down to the core of it, and I thought the legislator was really, really practical about it, because she was like, hey, if we need to change the bill, we can change the bill. But here's the context. Here's the background. And so I think we see these headlines. I know we see these headlines today, and we raise a rabble about it. And when you go a little deeper, it's like, hey, we, <laughs> I want to let my dog hang his head out the window because my dog loves hanging his head out the window and makes my dog happy. Also, my dog getting a rock in his eye wouldn't make my dog happy and if I can avoid that maybe I would but we're just mad that we can't do the thing that makes our dog happy and when it, you started with parenting if we're taking care of our kids your kids love eating chocolate I've seen them with British chocolates they love them they, you don't let them eat that all the time yeah I do all the time breakfast <laughs> every meal whatever keeps them I'm just saying here. there's a practical way to to be responsible you, for an so entity are, are you are you arguing in favor of I'm, legislating that a dog shouldn't look out of a window no I'm arguing in favor of actually understanding the legislation okay. that's on the table before we get mad or scoff at it which is what I saw most most often on this topic it was a huh, I can't believe that she believes that and it's like well if you click two clicks through you actually understand the Work so from. I'm going to clarify for everybody listening because you have a you have a physiological response when you realize you're digging a hole where you might be interpreted as going one way or the other. The guy that drives a 1970 something Ford F-150, and I don't know if it has seat belts, but if it does, they don't work. Is not the person that is advocating the government getting in your stuff about whether a dog can go out the window. I think your passion point is click through. Like, find it's, out what the thing is about. It is. And the fact that she was so incredibly reasonable. She's like, look, this came from a good place. It was well-intentioned. I understand that people have qualms with this. It's very easy to change a line in this piece of legislation to make sure we're still protecting pets. But the call is, like, for burning her at the stake almost. It's it's just I'm, I'm seeing this hyperpolarization of – everything right now and i don't think it would take people a lot of google searches 
to find video of you and me dressed as Santa and the Elf sitting in the back of a truck without a seatbelt. It's just an interesting thing. You're making the case well. Hey, talking about being seen, can I just talk? I've spent a lot of time in airports for the past. I spend a lot of time in airports all the time. All the time. Um, Can I talk about infrared taps? What do you call them here? Faucets. Faucets? Oh, <laughs> I'm. I didn't know I, what you were talking I, about. You know when you go in the bathrooms, and yeah, they, yeah, and yeah. it's good. It's water saving stuff. I completely get it. Yep. Is if there's an infrared soap in an infrared, um, water thing. Yep. God forbid there's an infrared dryer. My hit rate is one out of three at most. I'm starting to worry. I'm not a real person. I, that is going to take longer than one recorded radio episode. I have the cap. same presence of those things as I do in a busy pub or bar. Like you I'm the, invisible to bartender. To You've seen clear, this. I'm you completely yourself invisible as to a translucent British man, and I think you're just seeing the uh, repercussions of translucent. But you talked last week about auto settings of things. We talked I about did. Chat GPT, yeah. uh, facial recognition, all of those things. I just like to point out that I am I am not infrared possible. Uh, so those people who think I'm shallow, this is your evidence that so that I, is correct. Scott can't get soap out of. All right, talking about shallow, uh, I want to. Oh, I want to. I think we want to because you wrote this data-driven metrics and marketing. So oh. hang on, Perry. We need to timestamp this because we're going to send this little discussion to so many clients yeah. who want metrics about their communications and marketing. Yeah. So what are we talking about? Here? We're talking about this. Um this desire, and and I I couch it as air cover often. It's a CYA cover cover your ass. Um, this request for deep data driven metrics, particularly around how humans make decisions, not just pure marketing. If I put this message in front of a person, they will buy a thing. Yeah. But the big real human decisions that we have to make on whether we're moving to a certain town or uh, going to a specific college, like the real, the, the uh, transformational decisions one makes in their life. Um, we've, I've, I've been talking to quite a number of folks who are asking if we can help them figure out uh, how to influence or nudge folks toward a specific But decision. they want metrics to show that yeah. we need a digital lineage to show that... How this decision was made. That you influenced it. Right. Yep. And, and that is... Um, <laughs> that's a nice thought. That's not how the world actually works. Um, let's talk about moving to a city, for instance. If I'm moving to a city, I'm looking at... Um, People in that city who might share uh, a similar worldview to the one that I do and send their kids or have a similar philosophy around schooling and the school systems and I'm on Zillow and I'm talking to folks and I'm looking at house prices and I'm, I'm kind of grabbing or building this profile of a place. And then I'm seeing the jobs that are there, if my company operates there, and I'm like pulling all of these data points in to make an informed decision. It's not that these decisions are unfounded or uninformed. It's that my ability as a marketer or a professional who is uh, influencing that decision cannot track from end to end how that decision was made. That is impossible to do, and I don't use that word often. So is your issue the belief that we put in those metrics? It so, is. So we sit through a lot of presentations where it's like, and these these customers did X, Y, and Z because they pressed these buttons and they saw this ad, and, and what you're saying is there are other... There are other factors. There are external factors and um, deeply personal factors and irrational factors that get me to that decision. The best we can do is say, hey, this person saw a bit of content, a bit of media, was introduced to an idea. 
And on the tail end, we saw that they made a decision. So what do you do instead? So, so if there's a desire to put up a chart that says we spent you know, X million dollars, euro, pounds, yen on this, this program, this campaign, if it was us, it would be a program. We're not a marketing campaign, but we, we want to influence these, these executives, these influence, influential decision makers, not influencers. We're not cool enough to work with influencers. But, <laughs> but the, what, what do you put in that place of like they then clicked and they did X, Y, and Z? The, the groundwork and the legwork up front to say this is, we talk about signal to noise ratio yeah. a lot. The, the words or the idea or the sentiment that I've introduced to a specific demographic resonates deeply with this demographic enough so that they will start to at least orient to the decision I want them to make. That's the best I can do is get them oriented on the right heading toward the decision and give them enough of a catalyst to work toward that decision, but to know that because I did this, they will absolutely do that, uh, I, I think undermines the way that humans actually function. So it's our job to do the legwork up front to say, I understand who this person is, how they make decisions, what they're f afraid of, what keeps them up at night, what they find joy in, and to craft a message that resonates and hits on all of those pieces and more. And put that in the right place where they spend so time. So you're saying if somebody is buying a product from Amazon.com, yes, of course, that makes sense. It's consumer goods. You can you can macro that data. You can model it out. But if it's a, if it's an airline executive determining whether they're going to buy a, a Pratt & Whitney engine or a Rolls-Royce engine, it's just ridiculous. It's it, Yeah, it's absurd to yeah, expect absurd. that that's how we can drive people to the Seriously, I mean, mate, this is this is why you're not more successful, because you're asking people to be brave. Ah, that'll do it. See, that'll get me in trouble. That's your flaw. All, All right. right. So we're going to timestamp that. That message is to go to all clients who are <laughs> focused on a metrics campaign for executive influence. Thanks, for, thanks everybody, for listening. Okay, uh, let's, let's go to, I'm introducing a new segment. It's called Reverse Innovations. So this is where this is where I believe that if we discovered the old thing more recently and the new thing earlier, we would think it was a great innovation. So my first one is, oh, I'm so torn on this. Do you want to do knobs or soap? <laughs> I realize that could be a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Let's do knobs. Let's <laughs> let's do knobs. So knobs. Okay. So so um, this segues into other our other section, which is people who are definitely not listening to this. Somebody who's definitely not listening to this is Thomas Scott, otherwise known to us as Scotty. Scotty. Uh, he is a curmudgeon of a dear dear friend of mine and distant acquaintance of yours, um, who who if ever I die, please delete the Instagram group that is you, me, and him. That sends no, it, it random lives stuff on. back Also, uh, anyway, sidebar, Scotty, mom loves me more than she loves he, you. Um, he showed up in my house a couple of weeks ago, which is great, which is the whole subject of something else. But he was driving his new his new Jag, mm -hmm. or as you people would say, his Jaguar. Uh, Jaguar. Jag, Jaguar. Jag, Jaguar. Not Jag-me-ar, Jaguar. Jag it's his yeah. Jag. Okay. And it was lovely. It was great. And he, he let me take it for a drive. And it, you get inside of it, and it's sort of Tesla-esque, but it's, it's classier. Beautiful. It is gorgeous, gorgeous, like absolutely gorgeous. He did remind me of the speed limit several times as I took <laughs> this thing out. And he um, – but the screen didn't work, the touch screen, mm. almost leaning into that Jag reputation <laughs> of there's just some stuff won't work. But the screen didn't work, and I was sitting there. And it worked again when we restarted it. It was totally fine. Okay. Right? So just in case Jaguar is thinking about sponsoring this, not a podcast. But – what it reminded me of, I, I wanted to say, and I didn't, because he might have leaned over and murdered me, is if there was a knob there, that would have worked fine, Scotty. So I, what I think is, if we'd had digital screens first, 
And then we, inco- then we introduced, hey, we used to have digital screens, but now there are knobs and switches where you get this haptic response. You know it's switched on. Mm-hmm. Like the indicator in a car, flashes, whatever you people call them, is like, I just think that knobs might be the latest innovation. Light switches, not sensors. Yeah. Touch, touch screens might be au fait. Can we, can we go academic on this one for a second? Oh, God, you've got – there's a theory, isn't there's, there? There is. Is there that is. This, this guy from the turn of the century called Morgan Tugblad? Torstein Benblen. Hey, can I – I'll sidebar for a second and say that the ace paraphrase version of the theory of the leisure class was more ace paraphrased than Torstein Benblen wrote. You just made it up. I didn't make it up. I just – I took what he said at the turn of the century and put my synopsis on top of it and introduced it as if he had said it. And so I, this is the first and only retraction of Envoy Recorded Radio. Uh, one ought to read the theory of the leisure class, but he basically says the people at the top are unproductive and therefore unnecessary. And I would say that time that we spend thinking and doing nothing is still wildly productive. So Torstein right. and I disagree. Right, but back, the, no, back, the back academic the piece of, uh, of Re- knobs versus in, in innovation. Yeah. Um, this is actually reprising a conversation Perry and I had about trains um, and why trains are slower than now than they were yeah. 100 years ago. And it's, uh, it's talking about – Let's just be clear. Only in a very backward country. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Technological progress and re- regress is, is okay. the paper okay. that I started yeah. digging into. But basically it says um, we get re- – this is Ace Paraphrase version, but yeah. I have the abstract in front of me. We get really excited about n- progress and new technology, and we get stoked on it. And the problem is the, – the line here is transient shock to population or pro- – Productivity induces neglect of some techniques rendered temporarily unprofitable, which are therefore not transmitted to the next generation. So basically, we get stoked on the next piece of technology. Regardless of what it is. Regardless of what it is. And as a result, we lose the institutional knowledge of how to maintain the thing that simply by virtue of not being new isn't exciting to the population, but might be more effective. So that knob, for instance. So yeah. so can we stay with trains? Yeah, because I'm convinced the reason that trains are so terrible in, in the United States yeah. is, is just because it's not new, mm-hmm. is that it's old, that it's associated with the Wild West and heading west and all that. Yeah. So if you say to an American, do we, um, uh, why don't you like trains? They'll say, um, I don't have control and mm-hmm. the government subsidizes it. So let's just focus on the sure. second. Yeah. So say, so the government subsidizes Amtrak. Yeah, and we don't we don't believe in that. We believe in sort of free enterprise. And then you say, does the government subsidize aviation? <laughs> they go, no, it's all private airlines and stuff. Sure, you go, right. what's the Federal Aviation Administration? Mm-hmm. They go, and then suddenly they go, oh, mm-hmm. what are airports? Yeah. What are, what are those? What are those flight paths other than railways in the sky? And this sort of a look. And then you get to cars. Yeah. And you say, hey, so you love that freedom on the road, the great American road trip. Um, tell me about tell me about the highways you you travel on. And they say, well, there's a there's there's like the main roads and then there's the interstate system or freeways as they call it out west. So uh, what is this interstate system? Well, it was invented by President Eisenhower. Oh, that would be the federal government building these. I would, like, we don't think about it. It's sort of a mental – but that would fit. It, it does. It, it's this idea that because a, there's a new shiny a new thing, thing, which cars were, and we've continued to advance the innovation that is private vehicle, but we've 
continue to whittle down our body of knowledge on how to maintain and improve trains as a function of transport, a mode of transportation. And, and we see this in so many places, the knobs versus the screens. It's a great idea to put an iPad in a car, except when you need a manual lever to get out of the car if it catches on fire because it has a battery in it. This isn't a rant about electric vehicles. It's an acknowledgement that, hey, manual or analog is not bad. It's just not shiny. And as such, we continue to digitize and push innovation, quote-unquote innovation, but that lands us in a place where maybe the thing that was most functional and most practical is somehow we look down our nose at it as if it's not viable, and it might be the most viable piece of, quote, technology, hey, end quote, hey, that I we wanna, can use. I want to talk about I want to talk about health a little bit. Health. You have talked over prior weeks about your struggle with sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And... I just want to do a scientific experiment about whether you sleep tonight when I say this thing. <laughs> there is a chance that I, because there's a little bit of an age difference between us. A tiny bit. There is a chance that I am the metaphorical 1968 switch in that Apollo rocket where it clicks and you hear it and those jets go and you're like heading to the moon. And I you, already and, don't like where this is. And heading. you, mate, are the iPad in a car. You're just that new idea. <laughs> Hey, nobody knows Perry, how to maintain he's gonna you. Like he's going to look a wreck tonight. It's not, a, <laughs> not an hour's sleep he's going to get tonight is this haunt. Oh, I hate this episode. Shut it down. Okay. Shut it down. Right. Where are we going to now? Hey, you had something about Shemima Begum and, and citizenship in the UK. Yeah, no, it was. I, I this was is hoping. the ISIS uh, ISIS volunteer, right? Yeah, so she, she um, Shemima Begum. Uh, volunteered for ISIS. Yeah. Um, she traveled to Syria to to join the Islamic State um, when she was a teenager, and uh, she is arguing alongside her lawyers, I suppose, um, that she ought to have her British citizenship reinstated, and the British government was like, yeah, no, dog. Hard, hard no on that. That's going to be a no from us. Uh, so that that's as much as... Really, I have. I think. I think there's it's, a. It's an interesting. It is yeah. a really interesting notion of taking his citizenship away, mm -hmm. particularly because the Brits are, are fairly emphatic. So if you get dual citizenship here, which I don't have, uh, but what happens is you you go to a, you basically have to to become an American if you emigrated here. You have to disclaim your national your prior nationality. Right. So I would say to a U.S. federal officer, I disclaim my oath to the king. Right. And I'm now an American, essentially. But the British government very clearly says the only officer you can disclaim your nationality to, your British nationality, is so a British, British official. <laughs> so it just doesn't count. So it doesn't count. So you, you get your U.S. passport, and yeah. then you've given your, your foreign passport, your British passport to the American, and then you just go to the British. The Brits will just, one. Yeah. They, okay. It just doesn't count. Um, it. But it's, so it's therefore interesting that we sort of t take away citizenship like that, um, which... Yeah, I don't – it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because you you either commit a crime or you don't. It's not like if you, if you, you know, rob a bank in Birmingham that you lose your citizenship. You don't. No? You, no. You, you're, so you're, you're, you're dealt with according to the law of I the place think, that you – I think this gets very blurry. I, I feel that this is sort of one of those national security laws that are just rushed through without a lot of thinking. Yeah. Hey, on that, let's go to Envoy Tank Radio. Um, yeah. So Envoy Tank Radio is our attempt to bridge the gap between military life and civilian life. Even though neither of us have officially served in the military, we spent a lot of time working with the military and 
have witnessed to just how how little civilians sort of have exposure or understanding of what what uh, life is like in uniform. I want to talk about two really great um, stories about the annual the annual the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Okay. And it's really about the storytelling that is worthwhile. But if there are two things, one thing to read. Because we just passed that mark. We did. It we was did. it was a couple was, of days uh, ago. Yeah. So Politico, uh, do these, uh, politico.com or politico.eu for the European version, do these oral histories of critical events where they interview multiple people who are involved in a decision, mm. but they layer it out on a timeline. And oh, they did cool. it over the build up to the war in, in, um, in Ukraine, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it includes sort of uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, General Milley, and it includes uh, National Security Advisor. It also includes the British Ambassador and um, uh, the British Foreign Secretary at the time. But it goes through this timeline, and it's just really interesting to read it. Now, don't read all of it unless sure. you're a complete nerd <laughs> like me where you hang on every... But that build-up... And this is but, Politico, you said? Yeah, so okay. it's just... It's, it's, we'll include a link in the podcast, but it's, it's in written form, but they use different people telling different chapters of story as it goes through. And it's, it's just an interesting storytelling. So that's from the sort of the, the capital city perspectives, right? This is this big sort of macro international relations view of how decisions get made. But then run it alongside, as you're reading that or skim reading, mm-hmm. listen to the New York Times daily podcast that is first-person accounts of how the war affected them. It starts with uh, soldiers on the front line through to spouses of soldiers. And I think for those of us who are cheering on in different parts, whatever your perspective on this thing, just understanding what war is. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, you know what I was reminded of, actually, listening to it? My my grandmother could never uh, overcome her xenophobia towards the German people yeah. post-World War II. Yeah. When you listen to this, you you sort of, you understand that perspective in both directions, mm-hmm. but just you've been on this sort of receiving end of where your normal life is just ripped away from you and this other existence exists. And I, I think it's very hard to empathize with, but it's a it's a, the, the two in parallel, sort of what was going on in the chancelleries of Europe and in the White House and in Ottawa simultaneously with what was happening on the ground. Listen to one, read the other, and it will um, expand your mind. I love that. The varying perspectives in our ability to build a narrative in our head different than the one we've been fed is so having not seen it i'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to i'll pull the link as everyone the three people listening to this do as well but uh, i'm i'm excited to dig into that the other thing that's interesting in that political piece is trying to balance um when you the, the intelligence that they had about russia's intentions and movements was incredible but not reacting to it so that it didn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Is that, hey, you're doing this, therefore we're... It was particularly around the United States and whether they relocated troops to different parts of Europe to defend from any potential... or or to signal, but you didn't want that signal to then be the case. And a lot of this was getting ahead of um, social media news and the narrative, all the things that... It saddens me to say this, that how much our field relates to... The things that go on in, in ministries of defense around the world is a little terrifying to me. Yeah. At, at, a, at another time, we might dig into how social media and our ability to pass information as quickly as we do influences geopolitical events, right? Because we have to factor that in now in a way that 
we, the, the government could control narrative, propaganda, news, etc., in a different era. And so imagine World War II today, right? Sharing things happening on the ground, real-time footage, video snippets, etc., of movements. The Battle of the Bulge is a very different conversation like, yeah. now yeah. than it would uh, have time been. Time delay. Uh, right. That's yeah. Uh, what we do with that. That just is the reality we live in. Um, but it is shifting our ability to be diplomatic and intentional and thoughtful about reaction because the zeitgeist is moving almost faster than seasoned, learned diplomats making decisions on how their counterparts in other countries, uh, particularly at the kind of nexus of conflict, are moving. I love how people who, who have not worked in the diplomatic service refer to diplomats as sort of seasoned and learned versus mm. drunk and slightly dithering. But those aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> um, hey, so this brings me, slowing things down, brings me on to gift of the week. Okay. Our ongoing segment where we make up a gift and then ask Ashley to make it so we can actually send it to people. Um, so gift of the week is this idea of, um, I forget what it was called. It's the postcard project or something. But we run this exercise when we're, we're running executive retreats around um, all large group stuff. Share something about you that few people know about you. Yeah. Yeah. And and we sort of run it in a real-time anonymous poll. And it's quite emotional. right? We've talked about this before. But people sharing aspects of their lives or things they've gone through that people didn't know. Well, we're going to introduce a, a slower version of this, which is a self-addressed postcard to us that we send to people. And they anonymous, anonymously share something about them that they just want to offload. So what you would receive, if you, send, if you send us an email that says postcard, you will receive in the mail a stamped address postcard to send back to us. Um, but we won't know it's from you, and you just share something that you want to share with the world yeah. or you want to share with us. Be clear whether we can share it on the radio show or not. Yeah. We'll share it back. So you get a postcard. You get a free postcard. Oh, uh, it was called Post Secret was the thing that inspired it. It uh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Google Post Secret. I'm not sure if it's around anymore, but it's really good. I, I refer to it. So Carrie Fisher's autobiography was called Postcards from the Edge. It's and I, I've never read it, <laughs> but I like the title. All right, here's a plug. Um, and I feel like Postcards from the Edge is a better description for this, which is like, hey, this is this is the edge of the world that I live in, and yeah. I'd like to share it. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's yeah. what I'm living yeah, I'll share it with you all. Yeah. Um, so if you've got something to offload, get off your chest, or uh, just put out there into the ether for those who might be experiencing something similar, but all anonymous, send us a postcard. Yeah. All send right. us an email to send you a postcard to send us back a postcard. I mean, something like that. Yeah, there we go. All right, we've got um, a couple of last things. We've got to do pointless plug, and I just wanted to speak to uh, the earthquake in Turkey. Um, so, Did so we cover people not listening to this? Is that Scotty? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Scotty's right. not listening. Never mind. We, we'll skip that. Scotty. I talked about his knob. So his... Scotty's knob. We touched on that already. <laughs> yes. Next. That yeah. translates really it, well it, it everywhere really, but here. It just really does. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Uh, just the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Actually, it's back to that sort of real-time information piece mm -hmm. is that we, we've been living real-time. And I think we, we purposely didn't talk about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria because we just felt there was a, a ton of opinions and coverage. But actually, what I now think upon reflection was there wasn't a ton of coverage in the sense of what we're seeing coming out of Ukraine is a lot of first-person narrative that actually does have cellular bandwidth that is telling the story of what's going on. And there's there's been a lot coming out of Turkey, but Syria, which was almost equally affected because of the civil war that's been going on, we just haven't seen it. 
Mm-hmm. We just have not seen it. And what we're having to do is extrapolate and say, hey, what's been happening in Turkey is probably worse in Syria. But I'm not sure how good humans are at saying, hey, I I lost, you know, I lost my house. But imagine if I lost my house and my office and my grandmother's house. And yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, I think my point around this is we... And look, this this can apply to a lot of longer range macro issues is what do we do about the fact that our attention span and our, our donation dollars and euros and pounds and yen will go to things that are at the forefront of our minds and the forefront of our minds very much depend upon bandwidth instead of well, a little bit of the narrative, but but increasingly just bandwidth. So as we are focused upon, for instance, the war in Ukraine, I don't think you and I have talked about, um, well, there's there's a there's an ongoing horrific civil war going on in Mali, for instance, yeah. which we have not covered. We have not. I no. love that I say covered as if there are people listening to us. We have not talked about. We, no, we yeah. haven't. But there, there, bandwidth. There is, an, uh, there's the generational conversation. It happens every generation about how the world has gotten worse or better and if things are happening at a pace that is different than before, so on and so forth. And it's, it's, I think, almost simply that we are con- inundated by and consume information at a different clip than we used to. And, and to that end, I, I think for the things that we care about, one that requires us to know what we care about, and that's incredibly hard for folks. We're supposed to care about everything because we're these global citizens. We have to see everything across the world happening in real time and keep up with it and post the thing to Instagram about it and tweet and then donate and we have to do that. And now we have 50,000 things instead of the three causes that we we had maybe 25, 40 years ago, right? Um, This isn't a side, this isn't a, a non sequitur. I deleted Twitter from my phone. Did you? I did. Oh, I did. I've, I've got yeah. I've yeah, got I, did, I deleted Twitter, and I found that I was just scrolling through the horrific things happening around the world, and I'd find corners of memes and cats and dogs, and it would make me happy, and then I'd end up back in. Here's the rising death toll, and all of those things are important to have a pulse on, I think. But how we consume that, I think we could be more intentional about it. So let me find the areas of politics and unrest across the world and a roundup of the things to get a handle on what's happening. I do want to be a global citizen, but I feel like just having them jammed down my throat via scroll or the real-time updates from whatever news outlet that I follow to my Apple Watch, to my phone, to my iPad, all at the same time, um, it allows me to focus on nothing. And I'd rather step back a bit and then opt in to a couple areas of information I'd like to consume. Um, so I'm, I'm recalibrating to that end, recalibrating how I consume information. Otherwise, we will never be able to catch up and the uh, analysis paralysis will kick in. We will actually never commit to supporting a singular cause or a specific thing because there's too oh, much. because you just keep hopping. Yeah. You can't commit to a thing you care about yeah. because you, you're just addicted to the next disaster. Yeah. yeah. So like you threw Molly out there, I'll, I'll 
very sheepishly admit that I haven't kept up with Molly because there's Turkey and there's Syria and there's Ukraine and, 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 and then there's the elections here in my corner of the world and there's too much to keep up with. Um, But I'm hoping that we all start to find, call it five things, that's an arbitrary number, five things that we can give a shit about this week and commit to that rather than expecting that we can keep up with the 50, because 50 things will happen between now and the next Envoy Recorded Radio. And if we expect that we can do something about all 50, we're going to do something about none of them. I just want to appreciate the difference in our language, because when you said you threw Molly out there, I didn't hear Molly. I heard Molly, and that's a whole different thing. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So actually, on that note, this is my declaration. Um, Elizabeth pointed out to me, Elizabeth Clughart mm-hmm. of, of uh, Rogue Media, Media, Perry's boss, as she's more widely known, is um, that my Instagram account, which is really just reposts of your Instagram account, gives yeah. the impression that we have more fun than we do. And so I'm killing it. I'm gonna ki- I've got a kid's one where I just humiliate the children. I'm going to keep that. Yeah. But, but my grown-up one, I think it's just time for it to die. Huh. That it, it gives the impression that we're just fooling around and actually we're not. Actually hmm. not. Well, it's linked to the same. So you've deleted yeah, Twitter. I deleted Twitter. I'm deleting Instagram. And it might upset Meta, but if there's one company in the world I guarantee we will not do work for, it is Meta. I'll WhatsApp you that. So there you go. <laughs> final question. Uh, uh, product post pro- product promotion of the week. And this is a this is a significant question. Okay. On this list, yeah. there is a rather fine black owned company that I think it's due that we we promoted this product because it's great. I'm a big fan. Yeah. But it's Black History Month in the United States. Yeah. Is So should we promote a black product during Black History Month or should we wait? And why? Here's what I think. We should promote this product because we love it and it coincidentally happens to be Black History Month. And I would imagine because of how intentional I consume things, there will be yet another and another and another. It's just black products everywhere. Black products. Because we, cov- we covered Calendly already. Oh, we did. We did. We did. And black that products. wasn't that's in uh, no, Black did. History that's Month. Um, so, yeah. No, that's, that's my take is we can cover products because we dig them. And uh, irrespective of provenance, we, we can talk about them. Total sideline. Yeah. Um, minority purchases. Like mm. diversity procurement, uh, we we get caught in a bit of a hole. It's somebody should fix for that. Well, maybe or not. But if Stinson was black mm-hmm. or you were a woman, we could qualify as a minority-owned business. Yeah, but we but we can't. We qualify as actually nothing. I, I don't know if you're expecting or leading me toward this, but I I don't generally believe in opting into minority business status. That's a whole different part. Oh, we should talk. All right, we'll yeah. talk about uh, it. I, I, look, I, I just think there's more risk than reward there. Oh. Uh, because if I leave Envoy or the Envoy portfolio at any point, all of the clients and engagements we got as a function of me being black and Stinson being a woman, and you're just a, you're a, a minority. You're an immigrant. <laughs> Like, are you a minority? Questionable. You're an immigrant. And so we have the three of us. um, So if I left, that wouldn't necessarily change trajectory of our ability to land gigs as a minority business. Um, But when it was just me and my co-founder who was white, 
if we had t taken a bunch of gigs, oh. that was actually risk to my investors. If anything happened to me, we lost all of the That's business so that we had purely as a function of us being minority business. It's not great for sustainability unless you know that you will be the principal forever. So I've always struggled with that. It just never made sense for me. Um, but that's kind of the corner one walks himself into. Great for the short term, questionable for the long term, because you don't know how that plays out. Hey, I want to be clear that I have no fear about you leaving this business, because I've been trying to push you out for the past couple of years. and you haven't <laughs> taken That hasn't worked. Yeah. All right, so the product of this week. Yeah, Uncle Nearest, premium whiskey. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, big, big fan. So actually, before I give maybe some of the backstory of Uncle Nearest, how did you track down a bottle? That was uh, It's very hard to get. That was your Christmas of, present In our part me. of the country. I had to go out of state to get it. I'll say that. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> and I, just to be clear, I went out of state. My usual tactic would be to bribe somebody else to get it into state. But I went to out of state to find this thing. Mm. So, Uncle Nearest, uh, premium whiskey out of Tennessee, I believe. It has to be Tennessee to be whiskey. Yeah, That's Tennessee. Um, really, really cool. So, uh, master named for master distiller uh, Nathan Nearest. Wait, does it Green. have to be Tennessee? I, that I, was wrong. No, that was no. not. There's <laughs> no, the whole bourbon whiskey thing. Whatever. No, Google that. Like. But it's 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 been commonly attached to Jack Daniels, yeah. and that's yes. which is very much Tennessee whiskey. Um, so uh, because Uncle Nearest, he was, was the, the person who formerly enslaved man who taught, taught Jack, Jack Daniels, Daniels how to, how to distill. Uh, yeah. And so the the I, I love that this is actually landing on Black History Month. Um, I did a, a Black History session for a client this past week, and we talked about some of the stories that get buried mm -hmm. in favor of the prevalent narrative, um, which tends to skew toward a very specific demographic. Um, and so the, the history of how we got this innovation and that thing and this product is often lost or attributed to the the... I don't know, the white man is maybe the best and worst way to say that. Um, but for this one specifically, Jack Daniels has this household reputation, this brand name, and Uncle Nearest is now really, really cool, owned by a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, so black woman is the CEO of this, uh, this uh, whiskey brand, and the head distiller is the, I am probably gonna miss a great, the great, great, great granddaughter of Nearest Green. And so it's really cool. This. It's two black women running this shop. The CEO, the head distiller, head distiller, direct descendant of the master distiller who taught Jack Daniels how to distill whiskey and never got any credit. And now they've kind of bought this brand, revived, and brought it to the forefront. And it is one of the, like, they're winning awards left oh, and right right like, now. They're crushing just, it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a toast, perhaps, on this Sunday evening uh, when I get back to my place uh, of some Uncle Nearest premium whiskey to, to commemorate the stories that we tell about the things that we love and sometimes miss who is responsible for it, how we got here, and how incredible the actual narrative is in favor of uh, one that... that isn't necessarily truthful and, and doesn't quite land where it ought to. I think uh, this is a good way to wrap up on Boy Radio. So Sunday evening, uh, we'll put this out on Tuesday morning. It is, uh, as I said to Coco, my eldest daughter, who's learning to drive, we were driving through the neighborhood, and I said, Coco, uh, I'm, I'm recording with your Uncle Ace later. There can only be one car crash tonight. This was your car crash. This is on Boy Recorded Radio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>